Well, good morning. It's uh, good to gather around God's Word now for a little while. I was thinking if this text in this light, if I were to teach a class on a biblical worldview, uh, I would probably pick two places of Scripture. One of the places of Scripture I would pick would be the book of Esther. And I'd have students read through the book of Esther and tell me where they could see God at work or God mentioned. There's not a single reference to God in the whole book of Esther, but you see God con continually influencing the affairs of this world that he has created. And I would also select Genesis chapter 21. I'd almost say that this was must reading for a class on a biblical worldview. And not necessarily or only because of what it says about Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac. But rather for the picture that it portrays of the world in which we live. Because in this chapter we get a glimpse of reality. The reality that is yours and the reality of mine. And not only does it make the point that God is real... But it demonstrates again and again how that reality changes everything. In Genesis chapter 21, we see how God is front and center in the affairs of humankind. The present world in which we live, and I've mentioned this many, many times, but the present world in which we live is a world that we would call agnostic, a world that we would say is um, basically consumed by secularism or naturalism. It has no place for God, it has no place for spiritual things, it has no truck for any influence of a spiritual world upon the natural world in which we live. This is all there is, all that we can see, taste, touch, feel here is all that is reality and there is no reality beyond the physical. But the Bible on the other hand describes a very different world. It describes that physical reality but it also describes a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality in which God exists, a spiritual reality in which evil exists, a spiritual reality that has a considerable influence on the direction of the physical reality in which we live. And we see this played out again and again in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21 certainly is history. It describes an event or a series of events, three events in particular in Abraham's life. But as I've been thinking through these verses, I'm also convinced that not only is it describing those events of Abraham's life, but it is intended to give us a snapshot of the world in which we live and the way that we live in this world. It describes how what we see and what we feel and what we sense is influenced by the spiritual reality that is all around us. The intersection of spiritual realities upon the physical reality in which we live. And I wonder sometimes, and I wonder if you've thought out loud, how does God and how does this spiritual reality influence your physical everyday life the decisions that you make the way that we live and so as we go through this text today I'm going to do something which I hope is not too distracting but I want to try and illustrate to you the two different ways that this text presents the world in which we live and I want to do it through two pairs of glasses we have a pair of glasses which I will call the human lens we put these glasses on and what we see is human reality but then we have a second pair of glasses, which I would call the spiritual lens. And when we put those glasses on, we see the spiritual realities that are reflected in this text that's here. And these realities are part of all of our lives. And so I want to just dive into the text. And the first point simply is, there is a birth and there is a banquet. And there's two events that are highlighted in this section are the nativity of Isaac or the birth of Isaac and then a banquet about three years later when Isaac is weaned and it is a uh, so these first few verses cover then the period of three years so I want us first to look at the uh, physical uh, plane and I'm going to put on my physical plane glasses 
as we work through some of the points of this text. So when we put on our physical playing glasses, what we see is a great deal that is going on. Front and center is the birth of this long-awaited son. In fact, this son has been waited for for 25 years. And of course, then, there is considerable celebration when this boy is born. In fact, Abraham names the boy Isaac, and they circumcise him on the eighth day. Sarah is overjoyed at the fact that she has finally been able to give her husband a son by her. She was so proud, and she was so full of joy, and we wonder if anyone could be any happier than Sarah was at this point. We need to see also that just on the physical plane, the child grew and grew old as any child would grow. That's what little human babies do. It's amazing to see how the growth of a baby, what, what happens over the course of one and two and three years. But there comes a time when mother's milk is no longer sufficient for a child, and it's time for that child to eat solid food. They used to have celebrations in uh, Near Eastern times when a child was weaned. And so Abraham throws a party. We would call it a weaning banquet, if you wonder. And it's a time when people would gather together and they would celebrate the growth and the maturity of this young child. And I was thinking about this. I'm surprised Hallmark hasn't jumped on this opportunity and come up with cards that you could give to a mother when her child is weaned. But as this party is happening, we begin to see some cracks that are taking place. Cracks that actually probably first started some 17 years earlier in this family. Again, we're on the human plane here. Sarah is overjoyed at the birth of this new baby, but it masks what has been going on behind the scenes in this home for 17 years. And how true of that is of so many of our lives that joyous occasions are wonderful public experiences, but when we go back home, the sorrow and the sadness and the struggle that we experience show themselves behind those closed doors. Again, as we have our human glasses on, as I would look at these years in the home of Abraham and Sarah, I would say that there's one word that describes their home life, and it would be strife. And again, stay with me as we work this through, but we've got to go back 17 years to when Abraham was 86 years old. Actually, we could go back to the day in which God called them to leave Haran, and Abraham made this pact with his wife, Sarah. And he said to her, you know, listen, Sarah, if, if you really love me, then everywhere we go, I want you to tell people that you're my sister. I can't imagine the kind of strain that that would put on any relationship. That any time they were in public, they, they couldn't show affection, they couldn't hold hands, there would be no sort of indication that Abraham and Sarah were husband and wife. Rather, rather, they were brother and sister. And the only time they could express their true relationship was behind closed doors. How do you keep a love like that hidden without tensions growing? But then again, here we are, uh, 11 years after that. Abraham had been 86 years old when... Uh, uh, he was 86 years old now. They still don't have a child. And so Sarah decide, devises a solution, and she forces it on her husband. She says to him, sleep with my maidservant and give me a child through her. So Abraham does. And then the home begins to unravel even further. Because as he, after he sleeps with his uh, maidservant or his, his wife's maidservant, Hagar, she becomes pregnant. She conceives a child. And as a result of the birth of that child, we read that Hagar looks with contempt on Sarah. 
that he has introduced into his home now, this quarreling and this, this contempt between one wife and his servant girl. And so, so deep is this um, contempt that Sarah complains to Abraham, who gives her the green light to, to do whatever she wants with Hagar. And the end result is that Sarah treats Hagar harshly. So harshly that Hagar picks up her newborn child and she takes off into the desert. She's in desperate need of help. She's all by herself in the desert with her baby. And she's told to return to her mistress and submit to her. And so she does. Now can you think of a more stressful home, a more tension-filled home, a more strife-filled situation than this? Both women can't stand each other. Hagar's son is brought up with this tension. Abraham doesn't know what to do, and so he likely stays away and stays passive as much as possible. And finally now, after 17 years of this, it all comes to a head at a weaning banquet. Where there we read that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing or mocking. Here's this boy now about 17 years old, he would have been 14 years old when, when Isaac was born, and then weaning took place usually about three years after that. So here's this young boy, about 17 years old, and I find it fascinating to think that Joseph was 17 years old when all his trouble began in his life. But here he is making fun of his little brother, the child of promise. Ishmael has no regard for spiritual things. All he sees is this little boy who seems to have dominated his parents' world now. And the word translated laughing or mocking is a play on the name of Isaac, which means something like he is giving me laughter. And so Ishmael looks on this boy, this 17-year-old, looks on this 3-year-old with contempt. And it's almost like, like 13 or 14 years of tension are finally released. And I can't imagine what those last three years had been like for Ishmael and even Hagar. As Isaac had been born and he had been doted on by his father and by his stepmother. I can only imagine the contempt of Sarah towards Ishmael and, uh, and his mother. And I suspect that somewhere in these few years it had become crystal clear to Ishmael that he and his mother had never had a part in this family over the last 17 years. And I think to myself, this is so descriptive of so many of our homes today. When you look at them on strictly a human perspective, they are filled with strife. There is tension between husbands and wife. Second, third marriages, tensions between stepchildren. And this is an accurate description of life on a human plane. And so we ask ourselves then, well, where is God in all of this? Is there a God that interacts in the world in which I find myself that is full, so full of strife and tension? Well, that's where we then need to put on our spiritual glasses, which have spiritual lenses. And we see then some fascinating statements about God in the midst of all this stress and strife on the human plane the very first thing we read is that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said he would and, and I, I think well what do you mean God visited Sarah well at the very least Sarah might have 
felt abandoned and alone in this world. Somebody whose promise would never come to pass in her life. But God comes down and he interacts in Sarah's world. And when you read through the Bible, there's many occasions in which we read that God visits the world. And when God comes down to visit the world, it's a way of expressing God's intervention in both nature and in humanity. In the book of Psalms, we find a couple of these interactions described in Psalm chapter 8, which is a a, a wonderful psalm of of the station of man. In Psalm chapter 8 and in verse 4, we read this particular uh, verse about God's interaction with the world. And there it says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care about him. God visits the world because he does think of us and he does care for us. Or there's Psalm 65, 9, which describes God's interaction with nature. And there we read, you visit the earth. There's that word. You visit the earth and you water it and you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. And so we see that even though there's this craziness going on on the human plane, there's a spiritual reality where God is at work bridging the gap between the human plane and the spiritual plane. And then we next read, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And you go, what's this? Well, there we have a a reminder that God speaks to us. That there's a God who makes promises. And we say, well, can it be? Is, is there such a God that speaks on the human plane or into lives on the human plane? Well, yes, there is. And there's a God who had made a promise to both Sarah and Abraham some 25 years earlier. And he had confirmed the promise again and again and as recently as only about a year ago. And he had come in and he had told them that a child would be born to them. And in the face of so many obstacles, in the face of so many threats to that actually taking place as Sarah is first taken hostage by an Egyptian and then by a Philistine. And as we've got all these dramas that are taking place and as they grow older and older and older and past childbearing years, God enables her to conceive and God did the the impossible. He kept his word to her. And what's even more, notice it says, and at, at the time that he had spoken, this is just not some random chance pregnancy. Not only was it a miraculous pregnancy, but to be sure, no doubt about it, it was God's doing. The birth happened exactly when God said it would happen. Not only did God open her womb, but God opened her womb at the time he said it. It wasn't just a chance, oh, she's going to get pregnant, and I hope, I hope, I hope. But she got pregnant at the exact time that God said she would. Here we see the precision and the control of God in the affairs of mankind. And we still have our glasses on. And we still are looking through these things with our spiritual lenses. And all of a sudden we read that Abraham circumcised his son. That's the human plane. But why did he do them? Well, because years earlier God had spoken to Abraham and said, When you have children on the eighth day after a boy, have them circumcised. There we have God speaking into the world of mankind once again and directing their affairs. God is not silent. God speaks and directs his people. There are other things that we could see if we left those glasses on and just looked at these verses. 
I'd encourage you to maybe do that later. But for now, loved ones, I hope you're, going, you're beginning to see that the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, he is involved in the lives of those that he has created. He is involved in your life and in my life. He is involved in the lives of those around us. You say, well, where is God? Well, he's right in front of us. We just need to put on the right glasses and we will see him. And so I might say, well, where is God in my life? And what I would encourage you to do is put on your spiritual glasses. Put on your glasses with a spiritual lens and look at your life. What do you see? Can you see times that God has visited you? Can you see times when God has spoken to you? Can you see promises that God has kept that he has made to you and that are contained in his word? Can you see times when God has done seemingly impossible things for you at just the right time? And most importantly, if you would put on those spiritual glasses, even if you don't know the Lord, and I would encourage you to do this, to put on your spiritual glasses, put on glasses that, that say, okay, God, let me see what you're up to. You would see that God has visited this world through his son, Jesus Christ. You would realize that Jesus was more than just a human baby, but that he was God in human flesh, and that he didn't just visit. In fact, he came to dwell here on earth. And how do you respond to that baby? Do you just see him as a baby or do you look at him through spiritual glasses and realize that this is the Savior God has sent for you? Have you been laughing at this child? Have you been mocking at the birth of Jesus? Have you been mocking Jesus as he's grown up? Or have you come to see that this child is the very Son of God, the one who can save you from your dilemma and from your sins and can give you eternal life? How different life would have been for Ishmael if he could have looked at Isaac through the eyes of a promise. And how different could your life be if you would look at Jesus through the eyes of the promised one that God has sent to deliver you from your darkness. So then there's a banishment. And we're not done yet with the two pairs of glasses. And we need to put on our glasses once again, just our, our human glasses, the glasses through which we can just see things that take place on a human lens. And we realize that sometime during this weaning banquet, Sarah catches her stepson mocking her son. And she snaps. Or she reaches a breaking point. And she goes to Abraham with strong words. She says, cast out this slave woman and her son. Drive her out. It's the same word that's used when God drives out Adam and Eve from the garden. It's the same word that God uses to describe him driving Cain out of working the ground. And so she says, cast this slave woman and her son out. You might notice that when you read this banquet scene from, from verses 10 to 14 as the interaction in place, not once does Sarah refer to Hagar by her name or to her stepson Ishmael by his name. It's always this stepwoman or this slave woman and her son. So much is her delight, dislike towards them, she can't even use their names. And it would seem that at the heart of her anger is any possibility that Ishmael might inherit anything of Abraham. 
cast this slave woman out and her son, for that son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. How often do we see that kind of pettiness on a human plane? Abraham is really now caught between a rock and a hard place. He's displeased, probably both with Ishmael. How could Ishmael act this way towards Isaac, his son? But he's also probably displeased with Sarah. And he now finds himself in an impossible situation. And all of this came about because he listened to Sarah in the first place. Some 17 years earlier when God's promise had not yet been uh, made uh, full in their lives. He listened to Sarah and she says, sleep with Hagar and give me a son through Hagar. Now Sarah is making a demand that will break his heart. Kick your son out of our home and get rid of his mother. Here is a son that Abraham had grown to love. Here is a son that Abraham at one time said to God, Oh God, think about Ishmael. Can't my inheritance go through Ishmael? It's difficult to read then verse 14. Without a heart that breaks. It's almost a steeled determination as early in the morning. Kind of like if I don't get up and get on this right away, I'm not going to do it. Early in the morning, Abraham gets up. He takes a sack of water and he takes some bread and he gives it to Hagar. And he also gives her his son and he sends them off into the desert. And wow. Doesn't that describe sometimes the human hurt and pain that we cause and we inflict on people. And we watch Hagar and her son wander off into the desert. And we realize that the bread is going to run out. We realize that the water is going to run out. And surely they do. And Hagar takes her son and she tells him to sit under a bush. And then she goes far enough away that she can't hear his anguished cries of hunger pains and thirst that he is experiencing and she waits for death to come to both but death is held at bay and she sees a well and we read that she finds a home in the wilderness and she finds a wife for her son and the story continues it's painful isn't it to look at life on simply a human pain there's so much anguish there's so much hurt and we could rightly ask, where is God in all of this? So it's time to put on our glasses with our spiritual lenses once again. And what do we find as we read through this text now, layered in on it? Well, God doesn't leave Abraham on his own. It's not that Abraham has to make this decision on his own. Abraham doesn't know the future. Abraham doesn't know the next day, but God does. And so God speaks to Abraham. And God tells Abraham, listen to Sarah, your wife. And then he confirms the promise that he made to Abraham a year ago. And I wonder if Abraham had forgotten that promise. Because four years earlier, having lost hope in the first promise, God, is a, or Abraham, as I said, already says, oh, 
that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, Sarah, your wife will bear you a son. You shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, God tells Abraham, I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him greatly. Here, God needs to remind Abraham of a promise he had already made to him a year earlier, or about four years earlier. God had already told Abraham that he would look after Ishmael, but Abraham again had forgotten the promise of God in his life. And what we can see through these glasses, beginning in verse 17, is nothing short of awesome. I was struck by this. What do we read? Well, God hears the boy crying. What do you mean God hears the boy crying? Well, the same God who made the human ears, the God who hears what the, what, he is a God who hears. And the one who made that ear is everywhere present. And he hears the boy crying. The sound of the boy, the sound of the dying boy, the sound of that starving boy reaches his ears. That for me is amazing. Some unnamed boy, his cries reach heaven. And then there's more. It says the angel of the Lord called down from where? From heaven. Here's this reality that heaven looks down upon the inhabitants of mankind and knows what's going on on earth. We already read from Psalm 33, but let me read a little bit more from Psalm 33. Just the, the, the last few verses from verses 11 or verses 13 to 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. What a beautiful reminder to us. The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of men, not just the covenant children, but all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all observes all of their deeds. What an amazing statement this is. God looks out from heaven and he sees this young child. Job in his hymn of praise sang for he looks, speaking of God, for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. The same God who knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, the same God who knows how many hairs are on your head, the same God who knows all of that looks down from heaven upon a boy that is hidden under a bush in anguish. What do you see next? Well, the angel of the Lord speaks and says, what troubles you, Hagar? And there again, I'm, I'm shocked. Sarah couldn't even utter the name Hagar. And yet God knows who she is. She's not one of God's covenant people. She's not uh, one of those that are covered under the promise. She is one who is outside of the promise, and yet God knows her name. And he tells her not to fear to pick up her son, that he has great things planned for the boy. And then I wonder if Hagar even remembered the promise that the angel of the Lord had made to her 17 years earlier. When she was gain in the desert and the angel of the Lord came to her and said, Listen, you need to go back because I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for their multitude. And then God filled out that promise to her. Again, God doesn't forget his promises, even though 
we do. And there's more. Keep your glasses on as you read this and, and, and look at it through the lens of heaven once again or through the spiritual lens. It says, God opened her eyes. That's amazing. God opened her eyes so she could see the well. It's, it's really a way of saying God saved her. That in her distress, in her, in her anguish, in her pain, she couldn't see where she needed to go that would help her. And God opened her eyes. He led her to the well. He provided for her. And so we're reminded of what God does for humanity again and again and again. It's called common grace. Matthew records some of this. It says, for God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is the living God who does not leave us without a witness. For he does good by giving all rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness and there's more what does it say it says and God was with the boy just as God was with Isaac as he grew up and we'll read that God is his Abraham well here we say God was with Ishmael God doesn't just write people off God doesn't just send you on your way even if you don't know him God knows you even if you don't think God cares for you God does care for you God had his hand on that boy, and he was with him. Don't let those things about God pass too quickly out of your head. You might say, well, where is God in my life today? Some of you maybe just tuned in or you've been watching, but you're not a follower of God at all. It's not that you're, you're resistant to this point. You just aren't aware of God in your life. I want you to know that this passage illustrates a, a truth that's throughout the Bible. God knows you. And God watches you. And God looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth, including you. He guides you. He preserves you. He provides for you. He satisfies your heart with good things. He allows you to experience gladness. He is for you. He is gracious towards you. Maybe you might need to just ask him, say, God, would you open my eyes that not only can I see your hand in my life, but that I can see the source of living water. Open my eyes that I might not just see a well of physical water, but I might see the one who is in fact spiritual water from whom I drink and I will never thirst again. You might ask yourself, well, how is it that God is able to do this for billions of men and women, boys and girls on our planet? Well, that's the greatness of God. That's the power of God. That's the might of God. This is his world. As the psalmist declares, we read it. God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in it and everything on it, including you and I. We are his creatures. He made us. He loves us. He sustains us. That's how big he is. That's how great he is that he can watch over every single human being on this planet. And you and I who are followers of God, do we not maybe feel a little bit of a mild rebuke as we read this portion of scripture? Do we know anything about those who live around us? Do we care for any of those that live around us? Do we know their names? Do we know their troubles? Do we know their trials? Do we know their difficulties? 
Do we have compassion on them as we do for our own or for those who would even be members of PFBC? Do I care for them in their time of suffering and in their time of need? Are we not shocked by how quickly a new administration has turned the weight of its office against the unborn child once again? Does that bother us? God continues to speak to us today. We learn about him through creation. You just need to go for a walk on any given day and look around you and you will, if you, if you will listen, you will hear the heavens declaring the glory of God. You will realize that God has made himself known. His power, his might, his imagination, his creativity, the beauty of his thinking, it's all around us. God has made himself known through the world that he has created. But he's also made himself known through the word that he's given us, the special revelation that's contained in the word of God. And as we read these words, God speaks to us. God warns us. God guides us. God directs us. God leads us in paths of righteousness. And finally, God has spoken to us or revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we see that on the human plane, God is at work in a birth and in a weaning party. We see that in a banishment, God is at work in a human plane. And then we come to the third scenario in this story, Beersheba. For the last time, we're going to put on our glasses and first look at this through simply the human plane. And as you do in general, what we have is just a picture of living in the world. We are not to be those who hole ourselves away into Christian communities. Rather, God tells us to live in the world and to live as lights in the world, to interact with the people around us. And what's the first thing that we see about Abimelech or about Abraham? Well, we see that Abimelech is back. And this time, Abimelech comes not only by himself, but he comes with Fickle, the commander of his army, with him. It's very likely to make a point to Abraham that, Abraham, you're growing pretty strong. Abraham, you've got a lot of people. You've got a lot of wealth, Abraham. I want to make sure, Abraham, that you see that I want to live peaceably with you, that I am a man of power too, but I want to live peaceably with you. So they make a deal to act favorably towards one another. And there's another little matter that's taking place in the world in which they live too. It's a matter of a well. It would seem that Abraham's men had dug it, but... Abimelech's men have seized it. I don't want to make too big a deal of this other than to say Abraham just doesn't roll over and play dead. He doesn't surrender the well and walk off with his tail between his legs. He stands up for what is his. He stands up for what God has given him. And another deal has struck and we see the need of and the considerable value of frankness and of clarity in our relationships with those whom we live with and around. Abimelech and the commander of his army ride off back home and Abraham plants a tree. This is the physical world in which he lives. He gets a little tamarisk tree and he plants it. It's not a tree that he plants so that he can worship, but it's a tree that just reminds him of an interaction with this, this Philistine uh, king about what had taken place. And then it says that Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistine. Well, it's only a snapshot of Abraham's life. 
we do get a glimpse, just a small glimpse of what it means to live in this world. We interact with those around us, those who know God and those who don't. One last time, we look at the spiritual reality. What do we realize? Well, the first thing we realize is that Abraham is not alone in this world. You ever think that sometimes? Even as a child of God, I'm all alone in this world. I don't know, sometimes we need Abimelech to encourage us. And here comes Abimelech along to Abraham, and he sees that God is still with him, and he makes this statement, God is with you in all you do. That's an amazing statement. For here's a, a pagan king acknowledging that a sovereign God, a God of another world, is involved in the life of a man in this world. What an incredible statement by a pagan king. In the midst of everyday life, God is seen to be present in Abraham's life. As Abimelech had earlier learned, when you take on Abraham, you take on God. And when you walk with God now, he sees God walks with you. So he sets out to strike a deal with him. And then we skip to the end of this chapter, the final scene. And we're left with a tree. A tree commemorating a work of God, not a tree that becomes something that is worshipped. And what do we find? It says that there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Here's this intersection again between the spiritual and the physical. There Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Loved ones, worship is to be part of our everyday lives. Worship isn't just something that takes place on a Sunday. Worship is to take place 168 hours of our week. Again and again and again through all circumstances and all situations by ourselves or with a group of people. Worship is simply an acknowledgement of God in our lives. It's a recognition of God interacting in my world and in my human life. Worship flows from a grateful heart. Worship flows from a thankful heart. Worship flows from a broken heart. But it's a heart that acknowledges the existence of God. And finally, we learn something about God once more. Who is this? God who is everywhere in all of our lives. Well, he's the everlasting God. He has no beginning. He has no end. He just is. And so I say, well, where is God in my life? I hope you see the hand of God in your life. I hope others see the hand of God in my life. I was thinking about this. Would people look at my life and say, say of me when they see us, Paul, I know God is with you. It's not that we're perfect. I'm certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Neither neither is Abraham, but that's not the, the qualification of God dwelling in us and walking with us and being with us. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In the same way, Matthew says, Yet your, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Paul says that, that you ought to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I trust that when people look at me, 
it'd be great just once for somebody to walk up to me who I know is not a believer and say, Paul, I know God is with you. Do my actions, do my words, do they reflect a faithfulness to God and a commitment to God? Do they convey, even in the midst of the times in which we live, probably more so than ever, are we people of fear and anxiousness and anxiety and worry right now? Or are we people that say, no, I trust in God. I trust that God is in control of this world. I trust that God is in the politics. I trust that God is in the virus. I trust that God is in everything that is taking place. I don't understand it all. I don't like it all, but I trust him. How do we talk about the things that we own and the things that we have? Are they things that God has given us? Are they things that God has provided for us? Do we speak of God's blessing in our lives, God's leading in our lives? Do we attribute the success of our lives to God? And then this comment. Do you see a contrast struck in the last few verses? It says, And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Sojourn. That's a word that connotes a passing, fragile, temporary, I don't really belong here kind of perspective. Abraham's is a temporary existence. In contrast to that, he worships the everlasting God. Doesn't that strike you? We're on earth only for a short time, just passing through. And yet we praise and worship an everlasting God. Back in Genesis 17.7, Yahweh says to us, I will be a God to you. There's no condition or circumstances when that can ever stop being true. God wraps our sojourning into his foreverness. I hope that as you go through the rest of this week, and maybe for a long time, you will carry around with you two glasses. One pair of glasses through which you will be aware of and acknowledge the human realities of life in which we live. And the second pair of glasses that you will put, put on maybe every day and look for evidence of God interacting and intersecting the humanity of your life and the world in which we live. Father, we come to you today and thankful for this book of yours that you've given us and this life of Abraham. Such a significant event, the birth of Isaac. And it is a fulfillment of your promise to him. But that promise never would have taken place, Father, if you had just let Abraham go by himself. But you were involved in his life every moment of his days. And not only in Abraham's life and the covenant children's life, but in the life of Hagar and her son. I thank you, Father, that you don't distinguish between those who worship you and those who don't. That your provision, your kindness, your reins, your food, your goodness, your protection is given to all creatures you have made. Thank you for your love and care for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.